0: SECTION 13 OF THE WORLD'S FAMOUS ORATIONS, VOLUME 4 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. THE WORLD'S FAMOUS ORATIONS, VOLUME 4 ON THE REFORM BILL By Thomas Babington, Lord Macaulay Footnote Delivered in the House of Commons March 1, 1831, abridged. This speech was the first of Macaulay's successes. It led to an invitation to Holland House, to a breakfast with Rogers, and to introductions to Sidney Smith, Thomas Moore, Henry Hallam, and many other literary celebrities of the period. End footnote. Born in 1800, died in 1859, called to the bar in 1826. Member of Parliament in eighteen thirty to thirty four, Member of the Supreme Council in India in eighteen thirty four to thirty eight, Secretary of War in eighteen thirty nine to forty one, Paymaster General in eighteen forty six to forty seven, Elected to Parliament in eighteen fifty two, Made a peer in eighteen fifty seven. It is a circumstance, sir, of happy augury for the motion before the House that almost all those who have opposed it have declared themselves hostile on principle to parliamentary reform. Two members, I think, have confessed that, though they disapprove of the plan now submitted to us, they are forced to admit the necessity of a change in the representative system. Footnote. The Reform Bill passed in 1832 disfranchised many rotten boroughs and enlarged the number of holders of the franchise. End footnote. Yet even those gentlemen have used, as far as I have observed, no arguments which would not apply as strongly to the most moderate change as to that which has been proposed by His Majesty's Government. The Honorable Baronet who has just sat down, Sir Robert Peel, has told us that the Ministers have attempted to unite two inconsistent principles in one abortive measure. Those were his very words. He thinks, if I understand him rightly, that we ought either to leave the representative system such as it is, or to make it perfectly symmetrical. I think, sir, that the ministers would have acted unwisely if they had taken either course. Their principle is plain, rational and consistent. It is this, to admit the middle class to a large and direct share in the representation without any violent shock to the institutions of our country. Hear, hear. I understand those cheers but surely the gentlemen who utter them will allow that the change which will be made in our institutions by this bill is far less violent than that which, according to the Hon. Baronet, ought to be made if we make any reform at all. I praise the ministers for not attempting, at the present time, to make the representation uniform. I praise them for not effacing the old distinction between the towns and the counties, and for not assigning members to districts according to the American practice by the rule of three. The government has, in my opinion, done all that was necessary for the removal of a great practical evil, and no more than was necessary. I consider this, sir, as a practical question. I rest my opinion on no general theory of government. I distrust all general theories of government. I will not positively say that there is any form of polity which may not in some conceivable circumstances be the best possible. I believe that there are societies in which every man may safely be admitted to vote. Hear, hear. Gentlemen may cheer, but such is my opinion. I say, sir, that there are countries in which the condition of the laboring class is such that they may safely be entrusted with the right of electing members of the legislature. If the laborers of England were in that state in which I from my soul wish to see them, if employment were always plentiful, wages always high, food always cheap, if a large family were considered not as an encumbrance but as a blessing, the principal objections to universal suffrage would, I think, be removed. Universal suffrage exists in the United States without producing any very frightful consequences, and I do not believe that the people of those states or of any part of the world are in any good quality naturally superior to our own countrymen. But unhappily the laboring classes in England and in all old countries are occasionally in a state of great distress. Some of the causes of this distress are, I fear, beyond the control of the government. We know what effect distress produces even on people more intelligent than the great body of the laboring classes can possibly be. We know that it makes even wise men irritable, unreasonable, credulous, eager for immediate relief, heedless of remote consequences. There is no quackery in medicine, religion, or politics which may not impose even on a powerful mind when that mind has been disordered by pain or fear. It is therefore no reflection on the poor class of Englishmen who are not, and who cannot in the nature of things be, highly educated, to say that distress produces on them its natural effects, those effects which it would produce on the Americans or on any other peoples, that it blinds their judgment that it inflames their passions, that it makes them prone to believe those who flatter them and to distrust those who would serve them. For the sake, therefore, of the whole society, for the sake of the laboring classes themselves, I hold it to be clearly expedient that in a country like this the right of suffrage should depend on a pecuniary qualification. But sir, every argument which would induce me to oppose universal suffrage induces me to support the plan which is now before us. I am opposed to universal suffrage because I think that it would produce a destructive revolution. I support this plan because I am sure that it is our best security against a revolution. The noble paymaster of the forces hinted delicately indeed and remotely at this subject. He spoke of the danger of disappointing the expectations of the nation, and for this he was charged with threatening the House. Sir, in the year 1817 the late Lord Londonderry proposed a suspension of the Habeas Corpus Act. On that occasion he told the House that unless the measures which he recommended were adopted, the public peace could not be preserved. Was he accused of threatening the House? Again in the year 1819 he proposed the laws known by the name of the Six Acts. He then told the House that unless the executive power were reinforced, all the institutions of the country would be overturned by popular violence. Was he then accused of threatening the House? Will any gentleman say that it is parliamentary and decorous to urge the danger arising from popular discontent as an argument for severity, but that it is unparliamentary and indecorous to urge that same danger as an argument for conciliation? I, sir, do entertain great apprehension for the fate of my country. I do in my conscience believe that unless the plan proposed or some similar plan be speedily adopted, great and terrible calamities will befall us. Entertaining this opinion, I think myself bound to state it not as a threat, but as a reason. I support this bill because it will improve our institutions, but I support it also because it tends to preserve them. If it be said that there is an evil in change as change, I answer that there is also an evil in discontent as discontent. This, indeed, is the strongest part of our case. It is said that the system works well. I deny it. I deny that a system works well which the people regard with aversion. We may say here that it is a good system and a perfect system, but if any man were to say so to any 658 respectable farmers or shopkeepers chosen by lot in any part of England, he would be hooted down and laughed to scorn. Are these the feelings with which any part of the government ought to be regarded? Above all, are these the feelings with which the popular branch of the legislature ought to be regarded? It is almost as essential to the utility of a house of commons that it should possess the confidence of the people as that it should deserve that confidence. Unfortunately, that which is in theory the popular part of our government is in practice the unpopular part. Who wishes to dethrone the king? who wishes to turn the lords out of their house—here and there a crazy radical, whom the boys in the street point at as he walks along—who wishes to alter the constitution of this house—the whole people. It is natural that it should be so. The House of Commons is, in the language of Mr. Burke, a check—not on the people, but for the people. While that check is efficient— There is no reason to fear that the king or the nobles will oppress the people. But if that check requires checking, how is it to be checked? If the salt shall lose its savor, wherewith shall we season it? The distrust with which the nation regards this house may be unjust. But what then? Can you remove that distrust? That it exists cannot be denied. That it is an evil cannot be denied that it is an increasing evil, cannot be denied. One gentleman tells us that it has been produced by the late events in France and Belgium. Another that it is the effect of seditious works which have been lately published. If this feeling be of origin so recent, I have read history to little purpose. Sir, this alarming discontent is not the growth of a day or of a year. If there be any symptoms by which it is possible to distinguish the chronic diseases of the body politic from its passing inflammations, all those symptoms exist in the present case. The taint has been gradually becoming more extensive and more malignant through the whole lifetime of two generations. We have tried anodynes. We have tried cruel operations. What are we to try now? Who flatters himself that he can turn this feeling back? Does there remain any argument which escaped the comprehensive intellect of Mr. Burke, or the subtlety of Mr. Wyndham? Does there remain any species of coercion which was not tried by Mr. Pitt and by Lord Londonderry? We have had laws. We have had blood. New treasons have been created. The press has been shackled. The habeas corpus act has been suspended. Public meetings have been prohibited. The event has proved that these expedients were mere palliatives. You are at the end of your palliatives. The evil remains. It is more formidable than ever. What is to be done? Under such circumstances, a great plan of reconciliation prepared by the ministers of the crown has been brought before us in a manner which gives additional lustre to a noble name, inseparably associated during two centuries with the dearest liberties of the English people. I will not say that this plan is in all its details precisely such as I might wish it to be, but it is founded on a great and a sound principle. It takes away a vast power from a few. It distributes that power through the great mass of the middle order. Every man, therefore, who thinks as I think, is bound to stand firmly by ministers who are resolved to stand or fall with this measure. Were I one of them, I would sooner, infinitely sooner, fall with such a measure than stand by any other means that ever supported a cabinet. My honorable friend, the member for the University of Oxford, Sir Robert Inglis, tells us that if we pass this law, England will soon be a republic. The Reformed House of Commons will, according to him before it has sat ten years, depose the king and expel the lords from their house. Sir, if my Honorable Friend could prove this, he would have succeeded in bringing an argument for democracy infinitely stronger than any that is to be found in the works of pain. My Honorable Friend's proposition is in fact this, that our monarchical and aristocratical institutions have no hold on the public mind of England that these institutions are regarded with aversion by a decided majority of the middle class. This, sir, I say, is plainly deducible from his proposition, for he tells us that the representatives of the middle class will inevitably abolish royalty and nobility within ten years, and there is surely no reason to think that the representatives of the middle class will be more inclined to a democratic revolution than their constituents. Now, sir, if I were convinced that the great body of the middle class in England look with aversion on monarchy and aristocracy, I should be forced, much against my will, to come to this conclusion, that monarchical and aristocratical institutions are unsuited to my country. Monarchy and aristocracy, valuable and useful as I think them, are still valuable and useful as means and not as ends. The end of government is the happiness of the people and I do not conceive that in a country like this the happiness of the people can be promoted by a form of government in which the middle classes place no confidence and which exists only because the middle classes have no organ by which to make their sentiments known. But, sir, I am fully convinced that the middle classes sincerely wish to uphold the royal prerogatives and the constitutional rights of the peers. The question of parliamentary reform is still behind, but signs, of which it is impossible to misconceive the import, do most clearly indicate that unless the question also be speedily settled, property, and order, and all the institutions of this great monarchy will be exposed to fearful peril. Is it possible that gentlemen long versed in high political affairs cannot read these signs? Is it possible that they can really believe that the representative system of England such as it now is will last till the year 1860? If not, for what would they have us wait? Would they have us wait merely that we may show to all the world how little we have profited by our own recent experience? Would they have us wait that we may once again hit the exact point where we can neither refuse with authority nor concede with grace? Would they have us wait that the numbers of the discontented party may become larger, its demands higher, its feelings more acrimonious, its organization more complete? Would they have us wait till the whole tragic comedy of 1827 has been acted over again? till they have been brought into office by a cry of no reform, to be reformers, as they were once before brought into office by a cry of no popery, to be emancipators. Have they obliterated from their minds—gladly, perhaps, would some among them obliterate from their minds—the transactions of that year? Have they forgotten all the transactions of the succeeding year? Have they forgotten how the spirit of liberty in Ireland debarred from its natural outlet found a vent by forbidden passages? Have they forgotten how we were forced to indulge the Catholics in all the license of rebels, merely because we chose to withhold from them the liberties of subjects? Do they wait for associations more formidable than that of the corn exchange, for contributions larger than the rent, for agitators more violent than those who three years ago divided with the King and the Parliament the sovereignty of Ireland? Do they wait for that last and most dreadful paroxysm of popular rage, for that last and most cruel test of military fidelity? Let them wait, if their past experience shall induce them to think that any high honor or any exquisite pleasure is to be obtained by a policy like this. Let them wait, if this strange and fearful infatuation be indeed upon them, that they should not see with their eyes, or hear with their ears, or understand with their heart but let us know our interest and our duty better. Turn where we may, within, around, the voice of great events is proclaiming to us, reform that you may preserve. Now therefore, while everything at home and abroad forebodes ruin to those who persist in a hopeless struggle against the spirit of the age, now while the crash of the proudest throne of the continent is still resounding in our ears, Now, while the roof of a British palace affords an ignominious shelter to the exiled heir of forty kings, now, while we see on every side ancient institutions subverted and great societies dissolved, now, while the heart of England is still sound, now, while old feelings and old associations retain a power and a charm which may too soon pass away, now, in this your accepted time, now, in this your day of salvation, take counsel not of prejudice, not of party spirit, not of the ignominious pride of a fatal consistency, but of history, of reason, of the ages which are past, of the signs of this most portentous time. Pronounce in a manner worthy of the expectation with which this great debate has been anticipated and of the long remembrance which it will leave behind. Renew the youth of the State. Save property divided against itself save the multitude endangered by its own ungovernable passions, save the aristocracy endangered by its own unpopular power, save the greatest and fairest and most highly civilized community that ever existed from calamities which may in a few days sweep away all the rich heritage of so many ages of wisdom and glory. The danger is terrible. The time is short. If this bill should be rejected, I pray to God that none of those who concur in rejecting it may ever remember their votes with unfailing remorse amid the wreck of laws the confusion of ranks the spoilation of property and the dissolution of social order end of section 13 recording by philip gould